Well, folks, we're excited to introduce a new book to you on Walk in Truth. It is the Majestic Book of Esther, an interesting book where God's providential hand is really working in an unseen way. In fact, his name is not even mentioned once in the entire book, but his fingerprints are everywhere, just like they are on our lives. We'll learn more about banquets and battles in Esther chapter 1 today on Walk in Truth. You're listening to the teachings of Pastor Michael Lance. It's our goal to build up believers and reach out with God's truth to all people. Now, here's Pastor Michael. So, the book of Esther. We don't know the author of the book of Esther. Some believe the author is Mordecai, cousin Mordecai. Others have suggested Ezra, who was a contemporary of the time, or later Nehemiah. The author does have detailed knowledge of the Persian customs, etiquette, and history. Plus, he's familiar with the court of Susa and so forth. The date of writing, though debated, uh, is somewhere around the mid-5th century BC. Uh, Scholars say that it can't be any later than about the mid-300s. And so uh, that's the best we got in terms of an author and a date. Uh, you know, some might strongly lean towards Mordecai. Uh, Esther, who is the, the main character of the story along with Mordecai and a few others, her name in Hebrew is actually Hadassah, and that is mentioned in uh, Esther 2, verse 7. Her name means myrtle or the myrtle tree. Her name, Esther, um, we don't know the origin of that name, but um, Esther is among a handful of books uh, never quoted in the, uh, or alluded to in the New Testament. And many believe that Esther's name may come from the Persian word for star, or it may come from the Babylonian uh, love goddess's name, Ishtar. But her actual Hebrew name is Hadassah. Her father was named Abihail. Uh, there's a record of him in Esther 2.7 and 2.15. Again, he is no longer on the scene, and so uh, Mordecai has stepped in. So um, the king that, uh, I'm going to teach you how to pronounce his name in a moment, is mentioned, the human king is mentioned in this book 175 times. God is never mentioned once. But the ultimate hero of the book of Esther is God. And so Esther really, you could say, imbibes the larger story of Scripture. And so here's what one author says. We live in a post-Christian time where we need to live out our faith in a world where we often cannot see God directly. Thus, we might seem on the surface to be a, ra- this might seem, uh, Esther, to be a rather odd book, but it is actually one that invites us the readers, to reflect on what it is to know God within this kind of world. A world where the miraculous is rare, and yet in which the faithful continue to experience the reality of God's presence. So I mentioned to you that this is not a book where left and right people are turning around and there's a miracle, or there's a clear sign from God, Or you open a chapter and it says the word of the Lord came to this person. Or the word of the Lord came to this person. Yet God is still working. And tonight 
if it has seemed like God has been silent when you've been praying about something or struggling with a situation or wondering, you know, about a direction, God is always at work. Jesus said, my father is always working and I am always working. And so the book opens this way. Now, it took place, literally, and it was. In the days, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes, if you have an NIV, his name in uh, most of the translations, at least some of them that I am aware of, is Ahash Rarash. All right? Now, you probably could listen to studies on the book of Esther, and people are going to pronounce this name in a number of different ways. But I'm going to tell you that the name... If you have a New American Standard, for example, and you see A-H-A-S-U-E-R-U-S, is to my knowledge pronounced Ahash-Warash. Okay? Now, the Greek rendering, see that, that name is the Hebrew rendering of a Persian name. So this is where it gets a little difficult. Because you're taking a Persian name and transliterating it into a Hebrew receptor language. So some of you are saying, my Bible does not say that, Pastor Michael. It calls him Xerxes. Anybody got Xerxes in your version? That's because Xerxes is the transliteration from Persia, Persian language, into Greek. And so sometimes there's not an exact science on how to move these names into a receptor language. Because remember, the Bible is written in original languages and then it is recepted into languages that we understand. So we have a Bible written in English. But remember, the original readers of this story were reading in what? Hebrew or Aramaic. And so there are ways that we translate the name. So don't get too confused about it. But the original name was, the original Persian name of this king starts with a K and it's something like Kashar Yarsha, but it comes into uh, the language before us as Ahash Warash, or if we want to keep it simple, Xerxes. <laughs> he was the Persian king who reigned from 486 to 465 BC. So about a 21-year reign. Most scholars identify the figure with Xerxes I. He was the son and successor of Darius I called Hystaspes. And you've heard his name mentioned, for example, in the book of Daniel. So it says, now it took place, or and it was, in the days of this particular king. Notice he's mentioned, what, two times in uh, verse 1, that he reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. Now, if you've read any backdrop on the story, even an introduction in a study Bible, you'll see that there's some debate about what the provinces are. Are they led by satraps and all this kind of stuff? The, these 127 provinces were probably smaller metropolitan regions that encompassed a city. The number does represent the grand scope of Persia's power. In fact, scholars say that at this time in world history, this is the biggest kingdom ever known to man in terms of the geography that it controls, the scope of its power. It's the biggest to this point 
It's a grand scope. And so this would, uh, in the larger story, if you've ever read the story before, that this tells you about the scope of the decree. When the decree is written to annihilate the Jewish people, every man, woman, and child, the scope uh, laid out in verse 1 tells you that no matter where you would run off to as a Jew, you couldn't hide because Persia's power was everywhere. So the decree would go to all 127 provinces where you might try to escape. And that is resonating with some of you who have watched uh, movies like The Sound of Music and Fiddler on the Roof and other stories where it talks about the plights of the Jews trying to escape persecution and wondering where they could go and who they could trust. This story lies within a context of continual world history from Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia or Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and up through the ADs of the Jews constantly being under threat of annihilation and persecution. So the book of Esther, while we could say it is a book about leadership, it is also a book about survival. And the Jewish people have gone through times, decades, and even centuries where they've known nothing but persecution, nothing but trying to survive. And the backdrop of the book of Esther is actually one that may surprise you a little bit in this sense. It is filled with humor. And you might say, well, how could a story like this where Haman's plotting the annihilation of an entire race with everything at stake with the coming Messiah and so forth be set in a context of humor and even satire? Because you all know that a merry heart is what? It's good medicine, Proverbs 17, 22. So sometimes in a day, we can watch news reports and we can watch some satire that's written about politics, for example. And sometimes we have to see the people in power and just, we're either going to cry or we're going to laugh. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes in the same day, you feel like you could cry and laugh a number of different times. But have you ever been there before? Have you ever watched 20 minutes of the news, the debates in our contemporary culture, the talking heads, the figures that represent the parties and so forth? It just went, are you kidding me? Are you? And that's sometimes literally what I say to my television, expecting a possible response. Like if the TV would say, not kidding, this is, I gotta show this stuff, I'm a box sending a signal, what am I gonna do, you know? But that's how you feel. So sometimes satirists in a culture would make fun of uh, people in power as a way of lightening the mood of a culture. And the book of Esther is certainly a book that does do that. This king that we've mentioned, Ahasuerus, Ascended the throne on November, in November of 486 B.C. He was 32 years old when he began his reign. So he, he ascended the, the uh, Persian throne, and he was in conflict with the Greeks, uh, fighting them on their western frontier. Uh, one writer says Xerxes' father Darius had been defeated in his attempt to take Athens, Greece, and the empire was resting in, in this setting of chapter 1, in preparation for its next campaign against the Greeks. So a backdrop to this big banquet that uh, King Xerxes, or his other name, is throwing 
is a setting that it's possible that he's trying to get. You'll hear more from Pastor Michael in a moment. But first... Pastor Michael Lance and everyone at Walk in Truth wanted to let you know how much we appreciate your partnering with this ministry, whether through prayer, by listening, and of course, financially. Walk in Truth is a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship in Corona, where Pastor Michael is the head pastor. We are looking to get Walk in Truth on many more radio stations, but we need your financial support to be able to do that please visit the website walkintruth.com. Click the donate button at the top, and that's where you'll learn more and how you can give online or through the mail and become a monthly partner or give a one-time gift. Visit walkintruth.com today. That's walkintruth.com. And God bless you for your donation. Now back to Pastor Michael Lance right here on Walk in Truth. This king that we've mentioned, Ahasuerus, Ascended the throne on November, in November of 486 BC. He was 32 years old when he began his reign. So he, re- he ascended the, the uh, Persian throne and he was in conflict with the Greeks, uh, fighting them on their western frontier. Uh, one writer says Xerxes' father Darius had been defeated in his attempt to take Athens, Greece, and the empire was resting. In, in this setting of chapter 1, in preparation for its next campaign against the Greeks. So a backdrop to this big banquet that uh, King Xerxes, or his other name, is throwing, is a setting that it's possible that he's trying to give his army and leaders some rest and get ready for the next military campaign against a rising world power that is the Grecian Empire. And by the way, when I mention these things, I'm actually giving you world history. So I'm telling you how world empires unfolded in concert with the Bible. Just a side note, India to Ethiopia is India to Kush in the NIV. In modern terms, roughly southern Pakistan to northern Sudan was the area ruled by the Persian Empire at this time. And as I mentioned, the greatest empire ever known. The MacArthur Study Bible mentions that Ethiopia, not Asia Minor, is mentioned as representing the western edge of the kingdom, probably to avoid reminders of the king's defeat to the Greeks, which happened in 481 to 479 BC. The name of the king, interestingly enough, uh, the meaning in Hebrew, according to Rade, the way the name is spelled would make it sound something like King Headache. (laughs) and I'm literal when I'm saying that, to its Hebrew Aramaic-speaking audience, Rade argues that it's possible that King Ahasuerus, his actual name could be pronounced in their native tongue, Hebrew-Aramaic, as Hedek. And they find in there the mention of his name three times in the first couple verses, some of the opening satire of the book. Because to quote Pete Puma in the Bugs Bunny Exchange, how many of you remember uh, Pete Puma? This is going to date some of us, but it's okay. Roll with it. Pete Puma would be out hunting rabbits, and he would meet Bugs Bunny, and Bugs Bunny was always clever. And so, you know, Pete Puma would be trying to eat the bunny, and, and, and Bugs would say something like this, oh, oh, hold on. Hold on, Doc. Let, let's stop and have a cup of tea. Uh, how many lumps do you want? And Pete Puma would say, ooh, three or four. And then 
Bugs would take out that mallet and go on his head. And he'd have all kind of bumps coming out of his head. And so in a later meeting that they have, Bugs says, you know, once again, he uses this strategy. He says, hey, let's have a cup of tea. And Pete Puma says, I don't like tea. It gives me a headache. And then Bugs says, well, then how about some coffee? Okay. He's always got lipstick on. Do you guys remember Pete Puma? That's kind of a noise that he made. Anyway, I'm sorry, but cartoon characters just intrigue me. So... How about some coffee? Sure. How many lumps do you want? Oh, three or four. All right. I did that only for illustration purposes. <laughs> but can you imagine? Here you are, a Hebrew reader of this story, and you read about King Headache three times in the first two verses. Right? Man, this guy kiss me. How many of you have this? pose in your life. <laughs> somebody, somebody who loves you says, what's wrong? What's wrong, dear? Oh, I, I, got, I got a headache. <laughs> that person, that situation, it give me a headache. <laughs> yeah, okay, anyway. <laughs> so in those days, King Headache sat on his royal throne. You can imagine the, the actual wider context is uh, here's a guy who, want, who gets convinced to annihilate the whole Jewish people. You know, that would call, wouldn't that give you a headache? You know, you think that you have stress in your life until you hear that an edict's been signed by the Persian king that cannot be revoked. That your people, let's just take your race, whatever your race is tonight. For me, it's Italian. All Italians in the land of Persian will be annihilated. Would you have a headache? Would you be going, what in the world? Why, why would this edict be signed? Well, Haman hates Mordecai. That's why. But there's a deeper picture of an ancient battle between Amalekites and Jews that will be actually even behind that and even further is a spiritual battle between Satan and God or the kingdom of light. So the Jewish audience, in effect, could read the satire or the comedy in the opening verses. Three times at the outset of the story, they can see the satire. And it may seem inappropriate, maybe to some, but in troubled times like this, or even the times that we live in, sometimes we just have to laugh. A couple of psalms. Psalm 2.4 says of the Lord, He sits in the heavens and laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And here it's talking about people who say, we're going to tear off the fetters of God. We're going to do things our own way. And Psalm 37.12 and 13 says these words. Psalm 37.12 and 13. The wicked plots against the righteous, gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. And so all of us, when we find ourselves in a precarious spot, a tough culture, a difficult situation, Christian persecution, we look at the Middle East, we look at our own government, you name it, and we shake our heads and we have a headache, we can see that God 
is writing the story and he's going to write the end of the story and God and the believing community will have the last laugh. We will. Because we're going to be in the presence of our Lord forever. And even though weeping may last for a night, joy comes in the morning. And some of you have been in seasons where it seems like your tears have been your food day and night when you say to yourself, where's God? Where, where is God in this? And the response, why so downcast, oh my soul? Put your hope in God. And sometimes we have to do some self-talk, right? Sometimes we have to just go back to Scripture. If you don't have a Scripture plan in your times of question and depression, and look, we all fight, you know, levels of feeling down and, and you know, uh, things that we, we deal with, we've got to go to the source of spiritual healing. Now, in the third year of this king's reign, verse 3, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles, the princes of his provinces being in his presence. He displayed, the king did, the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days. In fact, the party lasted 180 days. Wasn't there a story 180 days around the world? This was 180 days around the dinner table. <laughs> Uh -huh. A six-month party? Are you kidding me? I have some relatives that can't stay at a party for 60 minutes. We're gone. We're going to go. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, we're going to go feed our animals. We need to feed them before. What, do they got to eat every hour? <laughs> you just don't like us. Isn't that right? Well, <laughs> you want to know the truth? The truth shall set you free. Maybe not. <laughs> And not in this sense. The third year of his reign is 483 B.C. King Ahasuerus displayed his royal glory for all to see. But as we've mentioned, there's a hidden power, more powerful than the king's royal glory. There's a king of kings and a lord of lords. And in fact, I will tell you that his power and fingerprints are actually everywhere if you'll just look. Because the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. You can look at Psalm 19, 1 through 4, and then Romans 1, 19 and 20 tells us that man is without excuse because God's invisible attributes are clearly seen by what has been made. Man is inexcusable just by the physical creation alone. So even though we could say, well, in one sense, God is hidden in the book of Esther, he is clearly seen. And so we will see some more satire uh, as the king will make an edict and he will be, you know, undermined by his wife. And one writer says, uh, the ruling class of Persia is depicted not so much as the Magnificent Seven, but more like Ahasuerus and the Seven Dwarfs, close quote. But in the backdrop uh, of all this royal display of uh, glory, quickly we'll move to the forefront, God's people in Persia and God's plan. So 
Uh, here's what's happening now. When these days were completed, he, he gave this six-month-long party. The king, verse 5, gave a banquet lasting seven days. So an additional banquet. Of course, the six-month party apparently wasn't long enough. For all the people who were present in Susa, the capital, from the greatest to the least, in the court of the king, of the garden of the king's palace. So the... Uh, the garden there of the king's palace has the idea of paradise. In fact, I think the word paradise actually comes from a Persian word that literally means to walk in the king's garden. And so when Paul says, I was caught up to paradise, when Jesus looks to the thief on the cross and says, today, most surely I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise, it has this idea, this this at least hint of meaning of walking in the king's garden and comes from a Persian idea. Well, it's interesting to consider how the Bible is connected and ideas in Scripture from the Old to the New Testament are connected. Well, there's more of the teaching on banquets and battles in Esther chapter 1, so be sure to tune in tomorrow to hear more of this teaching. Hey folks, I'd love to hear from you, so please write me a note when you visit walkintruth.com. It's an encouragement to myself and to our team when we hear about how the program is ministering to you. You can get this whole series on the book of Esther if you want to have it for your own personal listening or give it to a friend when you become a financial partner with Walk in Truth. Just visit our website, walkintruth.com. Our time's up for today, so we'll catch you tomorrow. God bless you. Thanks for listening to Walk in Truth, encouraging you to reach out with God's truth to all people.